the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into our third of three hours. Uh, It is a delight and a privilege to welcome back to the show twice this week. The Times demand him, Brandon J. Weikert. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. He has another book coming out later this year, Shadow War. He uh, is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, and he spells his name W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Probably no guest. When I uh, no no guest I'm asked about more when uh, I go out and about probably no guest I have on that people ask me about um, you know how I know him and how they can learn more about him than Brandon Weikert. Brandon, thanks wow. for being so generous with your time and your brain. Well, thank you for having me. That's so you're always so gracious. It, it, it really keeps me coming back. I the, just tell the, the truth. It may turn. It could turn. <laughs> it can turn. <laughs> Uh, we're we're all walking on the razor's edge here buddy (laughs) (laughs) yes 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 none more so none more so than the uh the russians right yeah (laughs) let's start there but i did want to uh offer you up uh, a question to many members of the audience picking up on things that you and others have said with regard to china so we'll do that in a moment but yeah okay here we are what are we into this three weeks now are we in yeah in, in in three weeks what do we know and what do you think, Brandon? Well, we don't know a lot because, you know, we don't have a lot of uh, reliable people on the ground giving us sort of the unvarnished truth. Uh, we don't have an objective media. Uh, we certainly understandably can't rely on what the Ukrainians are saying because they're trying to do anything they can to save their country, and that's, that's what they should be doing. Uh, and we can't obviously rely on the Russians because lying is a lot like breathing for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's sort of, we're just sort of going off of emotion and we're going off of what we think we know. We're going off of our signals intelligence and our, our sort of, uh, our surveillance of the region, but we don't have much in the way of boots on the ground of humans. We have some elements and I can assure you that we certainly have U.S. special forces and CIA paramilitaries on the ground right now, uh, sort of keeping an eye on things in Ukraine. But those are small elements, and it's still not going to give you the full picture. And, and it's the fog of war. Uh, I just read an article in where I get published at the Washington Times, an article about how on all fronts the, the uh, Russian offensive in Ukraine has stalled, is the headline. Uh, and uh, according to the United Kingdom's military. Our military is not saying that. Uh, so I'll tell you what I think. What I think is that, as we've talked about before, as recently as this Monday, um, the Russian way of war traditionally is slow, plotting, bloody, messy, uh, and essentially uh, is more like Stalingrad uh, than it is like, uh, you know, our invasion of, uh, or, or rather our liberation of Kuwait. Right, they don't do shock and awe. 
They, we do. They we, can't. We, we attempt shock and awe. They don't attempt shock. And so, awe. so you know, the Russians really uh, under Putin after 2008, their invasion of Georgia, they really tried to get more surgical strikes going. They really tried to build out the precision guided munitions capability that the Americans have, and they just literally can't do it. They don't have enough. They literally ran out of precision guided munitions during the Georgia war, which is why ultimately they started just carpet bombing everything, because they just literally ran out. Uh, uh, same thing in Aleppo. They flattened Aleppo partly because, logistically, they ran out of the smart bombs. Mm-hmm. And so this is a common problem, where the Russians just, they revert sort of to the median, or the norm, which is, you know, when in doubt, flatten everything around you, and keep flattening until the other side is either all dead, or submits, and that's where we are now. And there are people telling us that, oh, don't worry, Putin's getting ready to negotiate. Maybe. I don't see it, though. I think Putin's going to keep the lines of communication open uh, to have a backstop or like a contingency plan if it really does fail. But I don't think Putin thinks it's failed yet. And he's certainly so committed that he is going to flatten anything in his way. And I'm very concerned for the future of Kiev, uh, the capital of Ukraine, uh, because I think he's going to flatten that city uh, if things continue. And I think they will continue because, rightly so, the Ukrainians aren't going to quit. Good summary, Brandon Weikert. Thank you for that. Uh, You and I have in detail spelled out the errors, uh, the mistakes, the misjudgments, the miscalculations and the stupidity that uh, allowed for some of this, that green lighted some of this, that yellow lighted some of this. Um, But taking all that aside for a moment, what we're doing now? Are we doing the right thing now? Are we proceeding the right way? By we, I mean the United States. Yeah. So first of all, let's just say um, if I have to hear Churchillian one more time uh, when describing Zelensky, I'm gonna. I'm gonna get very <laughs> there's, there's, okay. there's no doubt that he is a rock star, and this guy is uh, probably the greatest Ukrainian leader in decades. Uh, maybe ever, and, you know, he's really doing right by his people. I mean, he's somebody that every Westerner should tip their hat to. I mean, this is a, this is a really good guy. This is a wild thing to see. Um, at the same time, you know, let's just everybody cool down now. Um, he's doing what he's doing because he has to save his country. Um, and Ukraine is not Britain in World War II. It's, it's more like Poland in World War II, if we're going to draw an analogy to World oh, okay. War II. Okay. Um, but anyway... Um, Besides that, let's also just point out that the leader of the free world right now is not the president of the world's sole remaining purported superpower. It's not Joe Biden. It's, it's Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, Zelensky is the one rallying the West. It's not Biden. It's Biden is nowhere to be found. Uh, you know, and so are we doing the right thing? Yeah, we're doing the right thing. We, we should be arming the Ukrainians. Uh, we kind of put them in this position. Uh, for 30 years, with the exception of Donald Trump, for 30 years, every American president has told the Ukrainians, you're going to get NATO membership no matter what the Russians say. Mm. And the Ukrainians acted like it, pretty much. Mm. And now they're being made to suffer because of all of the empty promises we made them. We should have never told them they were going to be a NATO member because quite literally, legally speaking, technically speaking, rather, uh, they don't qualify for NATO membership because they've had an active conflict going on within their borders for the last almost decade. Now, we can blame the Russians for that, but the bottom line is they don't qualify, and yet we were still, as early as a year ago, saying, hey, you know, we're going to eventually let you in NATO, and the Russians go, you know, ape crazy whenever we say that. And so it was only a matter of time before this situation became a reality where Russia would invade. 
Um, so we kind of put them in this position in Ukraine. So we have absolutely a responsibility to at the very least send those arms consistently uh, to the Ukrainians so that they can defend themselves. At the same time, there's a limit. There's a limit to what we can and should do. Because as I said this to you before, if we go in and we really get committed, once American and NATO forces are really committed, Russia's never going to stop trying to flatten Ukraine. And so we're actually going to be doing more damage to Ukraine if we start escalating beyond what we've done. Um, so you're saying if we if we went ahead with uh, allowing the MiG situation or the S-300s or something like that, that will ramp Russia up? Well, I actually think, listen, I think the S-300, I think, I think both the S-300 and the MiG, um, I think those are things that are legitimate okay. things for our allies to try. Okay. I think it's very dangerous when America starts shipping in warplanes. Yeah. I do think the S-300 is a little bit different because it's a defensive system. I was just going to say it, that really truly know, is a surface-to-air yeah, yeah. missile, which is yeah. only a defensive so, mechanism. Yeah. So whatever right. the Russians are going to say, at yeah. the end of the day, I don't think that's really an escalation. And the Russians are just going to have to literally deal with it. Because they are in the wrong here. Now, maybe they're going to walk away with a win at the end of the day, but we are going to have to bloody their nose. And so, you know, that, that is just the way it is. Do I think that we need to be, you know, committing NATO to this fight? No, I think that would be a very, very, very bad move because, like I said— That would, be, that would effectively tell the world that Ukraine is a member of NATO. Well, and furthermore, at that point, Putin really is up against the wall. Yeah, right. He is, gonna, right. He, he is not going to let, no matter what, Ukraine's going to die. Okay. He will kill everything in Ukraine. Okay. And so if you're really concerned about the Ukrainian people as I am, you say there's a limit to what we can do because we want to leave one off-ramp for Putin to hopefully take when and if he finally just tires himself out, which is normally how these Russian offenses go. Normally they just tire themselves out. And so that's the hope here is we can keep it confined to Ukraine, we can limit the damage, and maybe we can get an off-ramp. And Sun Tzu said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing now, but there's a Sun Tzu quote that says something to the effect of always leave one avenue for your enemy to escape, because otherwise your enemy becomes like a wounded animal that's cornered, and you do not want to have an enemy like that, particularly with news. Gotcha, gotcha. i got to take a quick break. I wanted to ask you, too, we can go yes. back to Russia on the other side if that's okay, uh, if you want to, but certainly in our time together. But I wanted to ask you, too, the question that I'm getting increasingly, and in which we have said, you know, the, 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 the war against Ukraine is one thing. It signals what, whatever the effect is, whatever the eventuality is, it will signal other enemies of the United States, China and Taiwan. Is Taiwan next? Can we talk a little bit about that when we yeah, come back? Absolutely. Thank you, Brandon well, they're Jay they're Appreciate it. I appreciate it. As we go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsors, Balance of Nature. I take Balance of Nature every day. Soybeans, cayenne pepper, wheatgrass, sweet potato, kale, red onion, red cabbage, garlic. That's just a sampling on the veggie side, on the fruit side, everything from grapes and strawberries to tart cherries to sweet cherries to aloe vera, and that's just a sampling. Take it every day to boost your immunity, keep you strong, protect yourself, maintain your health. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. His uh, most recent published book is uh, is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Uh, he has a new book coming out a little bit later this year. The Shadow War is the publisher of the Weikert Report columnist for any number of journals, including the Asia Times. And a regular guest of ours, certainly every Monday, this is a, um, this is a command uh, uh, encore 
performance uh, just given the time. So thank you again, Brandon, for the generosity of your time and your brain. By the way, before I get a little bit further, the subtitle of your book, How America Remains a Superpower, is remains the right uh, is the right right verbiage there? Are we still a superpower? Um, no, I, 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 we're, when you wrote it, yes. Now, now I wonder. Well, I got to be. I got to be honest with you. After we submitted it, my my both my father and my publisher, uh, after the fact, had said, you know, maybe we should have done uh, how to avoid a space Pearl harbor. Oh. And I was like, I would have loved that. Why it would have been better? Because I don't think anymore. Unfortunately, and this was the conversation was had in the middle of COVID. So six months after it was done, you know, being written and approved and everything, no more edits could be made. Uh, but basically, you know, I, I actually, I actually thought, you know, after COVID and the way we handled it and the way that everything just fell apart, and I told everybody it's not getting back to normal again. Um, no, we're not. We're, we're, if anything, a declining superpower. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a uh, regional. I heard a U.S. Air Force general say this once at a committee hearing I was in. Uh, America risks becoming a uh, great regional power oh, with no. global pretensions. Wow. And I think that that might be where we are today. A great regional power with global pretensions. Wow. Wow. All right. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to keep that in mind. Maybe a segue to my next question. The question I've been getting. Yeah, you bet. The the message China's taking from all of this. uh, What is the message China's taking from all of this? Then I want to ask you about Taiwan. Uh, Well, I'll put it all together and you take it in any direction you want. How hard would it be to defend Taiwan? How easy would it be for China to go into Taiwan? Well, that's a million-dollar question. So uh, we, the United States, and, and our allies certainly have been flooding Taiwan for years with advanced weapons systems. Taiwan's done a pretty good job of basically creating a mini-Western-style military on the island. Um, and I, I think that no matter what happens, an, an initial attack by China uh, on the island of Taiwan would be very costly for the invader. However... We know, at least within Washington, behind closed doors, every military planner knows that there is a limit to what the Taiwanese can do on their own, that they simply cannot hold out indefinitely from a sustained Chinese invasion. And in a Chinese invasion of Taiwan scenario, basically the political leadership of Beijing will have gone so far in politically on an invasion that there will be no offering. Very similar to what Mr. Putin is doing in Ukraine, that once it's such a large undertaking with so many troops and so many assets and so much money that and so much time involved to building up the force, that once the decision, the go decision is made, Beijing's not going to back off just because Taiwan offers some resistance. So the issue is going to be the, the right of boom, that, that after the, the initial attack goes on and the Taiwanese try to resist, what happens when naturally that resistance quotient is borne down by waves upon waves of Chinese attacks and aerial bombardment and cyber attack and whatever they're going to do to satellites in space. It's going to require the United States, Japan, and the other allies in the region to come rushing in from over the horizon. The problem is that's a very reactive approach, and it's very reactive at a time when China will have worked out, I think, a way to prevent that kind of sort of here-come-the-Calvary uh, approach to keep the Americans over the horizon. This is why China's invested so heavily in hypersonic weapons. This is why they've invested in the Dongfeng 21D carrier-killing uh, missiles that are now supposed to be uh, you know, on the island chains so that they can target American carriers even on the approaches to Taiwan. Uh, this is why they've invested so heavily in the, in the submarine force. Um, basically, 
the Chinese are thinking of second and third order uh, effects, and the Americans are still kind of just gung-ho that, hey, don't worry, at the end of the day, if we decide to come in on the side of the Taiwanese, we'll be able to do that. I don't believe necessarily, given the political situation in Washington, given the current leadership, that if the Chinese were to decide to invade in the next few years, I do not believe that the United States could be relied upon to come in and give Taiwan the kind of direct assistance it needs. There are people I've spoken to who are very high up. I spoke to one two weeks ago who was helping me remove somebody from Ukraine. Um, but I spoke to this individual and I said, look, I said, um, you know, about Taiwan, and I voiced these concerns, and, and his response was, look, at the end of the day, you and I both know that uh, once the Chinese hit Taiwan, they're going to lose face in the international court of opinion. And at that point, there will be support for the United States to do continuous resupply and, uh, you know, arms kind of supply, medical supply uh, to the resistors on Taiwan. And I said, that's great. I said, but Taiwan's an island. And that means that our ships or neutral supposedly ships are going to have to get through whatever Chinese are going to do at sea to blockade the island. And that could eventually escalate into a direct conflict between the United States and the Chinese over Taiwan. And his response was, yeah, well, at that point, then that really gives us the option, doesn't it, to do more than it ordinarily would if the Chinese just invaded Taiwan. Then if our, you know, and so I, what I, my, my takeaway was we're going to support an insurgency in Taiwan, but unlike in Ukraine, which, you know, you can get to by land, it's very near these NATO countries, resupply is possible consistently unless the Russians are able to knock out those supply chains. Uh, in Taiwan, it's very difficult. It, it's isolated from the rest of the world because it's an island. And the Chinese are going to have the Taiwanese Strait flooded with submarines, flooded with mines. It's going to be a disaster. Now, the Americans are going to be deploying our own submarines, but we don't have enough subs as it is. And so how are we going to be resupplying any Taiwanese insurgency to the point that they're going to be effective against the kind of numbers the Chinese are bringing in? And then this is what I told the, the folks at Western Air Defense Sector not long ago. I said, look, I said, the Chinese, uh, everybody's looking at, you know, bullets to bullets. Everyone's looking at, well, China's amphibious attack oh, right, craft. They've only, right, got, right. they've only got 11 of those landers. And so that's nowhere near enough to move almost 2 million troops on the high end is what they're going to need. The Chinese need as low as 300,000 troops. Somewhere in the middle, probably, is what they're going to use. But 11 am amphibious ships are not enough to move those kinds of forces safely onto the island in a contested environment. But what I keep telling people is you're forgetting about the fact that China has, I believe it's now the largest civilian cargo ship fleet in the world. And those cargo ships can very easily, like switching a, a switch uh, on or off, can very easily be converted into troop carriers. Uh, in fact, this is exactly something that the U.S. Navy's sea lift command capability allows for the U.S. Navy to do, to refashion civilian or quasi-civilian ships into wartime ships. We did it in World War II, for instance, a mass mobilization. And so China already has more than enough, if you include those sort of gray hull capabilities, they already have more than enough uh, uh, ships they need to move almost 2 million troops across the strait. So the question is going to be, are the Americans going to be willing to risk a nuclear world war with China over Taiwan? Will the Taiwanese, who have an advanced military, but very similar to the South Vietnamese force, not all units are equal there. There's a lot of corruption there. And I don't know how long they're going to hold out uh, yeah. in a sustained let, let me Let me pause you right there if yeah. I can. Can I keep you a little bit? Is that okay? Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Brandon Weicker, because I have a couple follow-ups on that, and then I want to return to Russia. As we head into break, a wake-up call from veteran-owned Midas 
Gold Group, you've seen it in the news. Truckers and their supporters were financially targeted. Democrats in the U.S. approved of Prime Minister Trudeau's protest suppression nearly four to one. You know how they'd think of it here. Gold and other precious metals, they give you the protection and privacy to your finances that they didn't have in Canada. Get private, get protected. Go to Midas Gold Group, MidasGoldGroup.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report, theweikertreport.com, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. His current book is Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Pretty darn good uh, column, by the way, on all that stuff in the Washington Times. If we don't get a chance to do it, uh, Elon Musk is winning the space war against Russia. We may return to that, Brandon, uh, either later today or certainly next Monday if we don't get to it today. On the Taiwan-China thing, are we obliged, we the United States, more obliged to the defense of Taiwan than Ukraine, or is it about pari parsu? Uh, we definitely have a greater obligation to Taiwan because of the Taiwan Relations Act, although the act was written in such an ambiguous way as to always leave the Americans an out. Um, and so this is, this is sort of the danger of, uh, you know, for many countries, many of these small countries that want to do, uh, you know, these alliances with the United States, uh, there's, it's very dangerous for them because really push comes to shove and you have the wrong leader in office and you're not in the right political setting in America, um, you know, we're not going to risk it. Um, and with Ukraine, we've done a lot more than I, I really thought we would. And I think that's a very good thing. And I think the fact that Ukrainians are such passionate and skilled fighters, that's good. But ultimately, you know, I don't know if the Ukrainians are going to be able to pull this one out of the fire, at least not conventionally. In fact, it looks more and more like they're not. Uh, it's going to take a long-term, like we said on Monday, a long-term sustained resistance. It's going to be bloody, messy, and it might not end in anything more than a negotiated settlement. In 10, 15 years, we could be right back to where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, you know, and so uh, with Taiwan, uh, we do have a greater obligation because of the Taiwan Relations Act. The question, though, is it's still going to be up to whoever's in the White yeah, House. Yeah, you still have and, to execute on it, right? Yeah. And I really, I told this to an outgoing Taiwanese general back in 2015 in D.C. who came and spoke uh, at an off-the-record event that I was at. And I, afterward, we were chatting, and I, and I asked him, I said, I said, everything you said was great, but basically what happens when you run out of bullets? What happens when you run out of bombs? What happens when you run out of the will to fight, or your, your infrastructure has been so badly destroyed, you really can't fight anymore. And then he looked at me and he said, by that point, the Americans will be there. Uh-huh. And I stared at him and I said, you really believe that that's going to happen? And he goes, we have to believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of where we're at. And so, yeah, we, we have, I would argue, a real obligation on some level, much more so than we did Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, to defend Taiwan. But the question is, how and will we do that? And, and I'm increasingly skeptical of that. So what if you're China and you're looking at how we're handling Ukraine, even if they know that we have a greater obligation to Taiwan? What's the message you're taking from the way we're dealing with, with, with Ukraine well, right now? But it might have been the, it might have been the same message before the invasion of Ukraine, quite frankly. Well, the first well, no, before the invasion, they really they really thought that Russia was gonna just swoop in, it was gonna be this easy peasy thing, and then that would set them up to to go easily to Taiwan. Um, much to the Europe's you know, it was a mess, but ultimately Europe did stand up. Uh, maybe not to the extent that we would have wanted and maybe not cogently enough, but the way that the West stood up 
as my friend Frank Buckley said recently, we should all be proud that the West, we're standing up. So we're standing up. Um, and so that is giving Beijing, that, I think that's forcing them to alter their timeline a little bit. Um, ultimately, it's going to rest on two things. How willing America's allies in Europe, notably the Germans, are going to be to maintain a consistent level of support for Ukraine, even if the country does fall officially to Russia. Uh, and I don't think that Germany and France really will be able to sustain it. Uh, and then the other question is going to be, um, uh, how long can the Ukrainian resistance last? Um, and I think that China, they, they were a little shocked by how financially nuclear we went with the sanctions on Russia. Um, and I think that has slowed down their timeline a little bit. But China's already reassessing. We talked about this, I believe it was you and me who talked about this on Monday. Yep. China's already reassessing. They're, they're going to be dumping U.S. Treasuries even more so now uh -huh. because they're, they're, they, they realize that they now need an alternate currency. Yeah. And they're going to start creating that over the next Saudi's time, doing that, years. too. Saudi's playing That's that right. game. That's yeah. right. And yeah. so, so our last nuclear option, the option we should have reserved for when China invaded Taiwan, we blew it early on the stupid Russia thing. And now China has gotten kind of a a preview of our playbook, uh, sort of like Bill Belichick, you know, getting a preview of the uh, the other team's uh, playbook back in the 2000s, all that scandal. Yeah. And now, now China's making adjustments, and they now are sort of heading us off, and they're laying the groundwork for when they eventually do go in. They're now going to be able to stunt and stymie whatever effective countermeasure we may have had uh, even before they go in. And so this is this is a real nightmare scenario. Brandon, I got it. This is a short segment. I got to take a quick break. Can we cut, circle back to, yeah, to I'm here. Russia? I got a few questions uh, from the audience for you. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Many thanks to Brandon J. Weikert for lending us his time, not once a week, but in this case and last week's case, twice a week. As the times demand it, they require Brandon. Brandon, a couple callers had some questions about what you see as um, the tea leaves for Vladimir Putin. Um, does he want Poland? That's the question that uh, looks like several callers are asking. Does, does, does Putin want Poland? Yes. Yes. I'm 100 percent convinced that this is not going to end with Ukraine. Okay. Now maybe he can't. Maybe he can't move beyond logistically. Maybe he gets ground down. And I think that's the hope everybody in Washington is even mildly paying attention to this thing is hoping that that a Ukrainian resistance movement can just basically stop the Russian advance. But I believe that the move through Ukraine is much more than just about taking Ukraine. I think it's about connecting Russian power with the Transnistrian region of Moldova and then pivoting over and basically hitting the Baltics, uh, whether it's through, you know, unconventional indirect war or direct war, I do think the ultimate name of the game is to crush Poland. I think it is to... They, remember, remember, Putin is... Putin is not this just, you know, rational Vulcan you're dealing with. And people tend to paint him as he's this cunning strategist. Right. He can do that, right. but he's, he, is, um, he is very emotional. And he right now is in, you saw that speech, what last night he made. Yep. He's in a very emotional state. Uh, he's on his bloodlust phase of dictatorship. And um, this is about revenge 
for the loss, not of communism, but of the Soviet Union's geopolitical power mm. uh, after the end of the Cold War. And Poland, it began in Poland, remember. It began with, with my friend Maripota Kavich and, and the Solidarity Movement and, and Lech, you know, uh, yep. what's his name? Uh, the, you know, Lech, uh, Lech Valenza against yes, Gerald Zelsky and Lech, all that. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It began there. The unraveling of the Soviet Union, more than anywhere, began there. And Putin has never forgotten. This is a guy deeply married to Russia's bad history uh, of, you know, collapse. And he lived it, and he won't let it go because it formed his worldview in his 20s and 30s. And he has spent the last 20 years trying to revivify the, the, the old Russian empire. And, you know, he doesn't really have the, the resources to do it quite the way the czars and that Stalin could do it. But he's going to give it the old Stalinist try. And uh, a lot of people are going to die in the process. And he's probably going to destroy Russia in the process, which is going to create a whole other can of worms that we're going to have to deal with. But in the meanwhile, yeah, I think Poland is his objective. I don't know if he can get to it, but I think he's going to certainly, he's going to go for broke on this one. If he can, Brandon, if he can, the U.S. posture is seemingly different than it is with Ukraine. Poland's a different is 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 an animal of a different uh, of a different theoretically, genus. Yeah. Theoretically, I don't know. It depends on where the country is. It depends on where our military. People forget uh, since 2013, we've been gutting the U.S. military. Trump came in and tried to revitalize, but it's still you know. I remember General Odierno telling me, you know, this was years ago. He's dead now. But General Odierno, when I worked on the Hill, was telling me and my boss, look. It's easy to cut capabilities. I can easily go out and cut three divisions tomorrow, no must, no fuss. It's going to happen when you're going to need to stand them up. That's going to take a long time to stand up those resources again. And so we've been cutting our military for like the last decade uh, and, and not giving it the kind of capabilities that we need, not prioritizing the right kind of mission sets. We need to fight a Russia or China. Uh, we've been fighting counterterrorism far too long uh, and counterinsurgency way too long. Uh, and so we're not in the right place. And so if Russia hits Poland at the right time, maybe the Americans don't come in. Maybe we sort of hold back and let the Poles and the Europeans try to figure it out, and that'll be a mess. But technically speaking, yeah, if they hit Poland, Russia does, that should be a war. And we should be willing to go to fight for that, because if Poland falls, the whole can of war, the whole domino falls, and we're right back in the Cold War. Over this time, the bad guys, you know, the red team, is now in Lisbon as opposed to East, East Berlin. And, and now they have this capability to really threaten us. And David Goldman has one quick thing. David Goldman has been writing this excellent, he wrote this excellent piece that uh, I think it was the American Conservative or Law of Liberty, in which he rightly, and I, he talked to me about this before he, he did it, but we chatted about it. He's right. The Russians have built over the last decade weapon systems that now can outrange the Americans. And one of the reasons that the Americans and NATO have been so gung-ho about trying to extend NATO's reach to closer to Russia's borders is because we're trying to get our current systems closer to Russia's borders because maybe our systems are a little outdated now. And we're worried about the deterrent, the loss of deterrent, because Russia's modernizing their, particularly their tactical nuclear weapons, but they're modernizing their nuclear arsenal. They have working hypersonics. They maybe probably have some kind of space capability that we either lack or have not yet resourced fully enough to have a reliable uh, uh, kind of weapon of our own. And that creates, as you know, strategic imbalance that someone like Putin knows about and will happily exploit if given the opportunity. And Mr. Biden may have just given him the opportunity over the last year. 
Thank you for that, Brent. And in the last minute and a half that we have, you saw the Zelensky speech. We covered it uh, pretty, pretty, pretty broadly here yesterday. Uh, right. We won't use the uh, C H U R C H I L L word, but uh, how would you rate it? Right. Uh, did he do what he needed to do? Did he walk away with what he needed to accomplish? Um, no. Okay. I, I mean, ultimately, what he needs is, is America to come rushing in, and we can't do it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't think it was Churchillian at all. I think it was it was necessarily pathetic. He is frustrated, and he is he is trying to sound gracious for what we've given, but he's also trying to make us understand it's not enough without insulting us, and it's just not. It was a very good speech for what he was trying to do, but I don't think he could ever get what he wants from us because we can't give it to him, yeah. especially not with Biden. Yeah. Especially not with Biden. Yeah. But, you know, and if Trump were in office, by the way, we would not be in this position at all. Well, you know, FYI. that's that that is the thing that I think even many, believe it or not, many liberals are coming to conclude. It seems yeah. like it seems like it. Yeah, absolutely. As I like to point out, well, it's in your book, but. There's a reason that the American hostage crisis with Iran lasted 444 days and not 443, right? There's a direct line between Carter, Obama, and now Biden, and it is a very nasty, scary place to be. Well, you have set up our next interview. I will pick it up on that point. Bless you, sir. I know it's late there. You've been working uh, the candle at both ends. Bless you for everything. Godspeed, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon Riker. No substitute for brains, folks. He's got them. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I've got a lot of feedback on this, so just to remind you all, I kind of did a brain uh, a brain dump between 340 and 420 on everything going on with the world and how America got us there and how the left got us there. So if you missed that, you can get anything uh, we've done uh, at 960thepatriot.com if you want to listen to that, if you missed it or listen to it again, roughly between 340 and uh, 420. I also got a lot of requests to share that quote again from Harry Jaffa that I used in, I think, that uh, rant or disquisition, whatever you want to call it. And it's the question of what the left is leaving us with cultural relativism and progressivism. And he said, if history or progress or change is to be our guide, if the truth of relativism, again, we're talking about the diminishment, the diminution of American exceptionalism. If the truth of relativism is to replace the truth of the Declaration of Independence, then the cause for which the nation fought at its birth and in the Civil War was as, me- was as meaningless as our founding. White power, black power, the Nazis, the KKK, Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot are as justifiable as Jefferson, Lincoln, or the doctrine of the equal natural rights of all human beings. That's what happens when you can't distinguish between right and wrong or good and evil. We can now begin to understand how the left can so awfully misunderstand the American political tradition inasmuch as it has been so very misunderstood for so long in circles from whom a better understanding should be expected. This misunderstanding is a cancer which will in the end prove fatal, not only to any political campaign that takes place every two or four years, but to our country. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Happy Purim. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth and class is dismissed. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.